You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Carbon Removal Newsroom. Today is our business episode. So as always, we have Susan Sue, who is a partner focused on climate investing at Topa Capital, and she also serves as a board member at the Carbon Business Council and a board advisor to the Environmental Voter Project. Hi, Susan. Nice to see you. Hello. And we also have Naeem Merchant in his new role as the Executive Director of Carbon Removal Canada, coming straight from Canada now which is a new climate initiative focused on advancing inclusive policies and innovations to scale up carbon removal in Canada. He's also an Elemental Accelerator Policy Fellow and runs the Carbon Curve podcast and newsletter on the policies and technologies needed to grow the carbon removal market. Hi, Naeem. Good to see you. Hey, everyone. Good to be with you. And I am Radhika Mulgafkar, Head of Supply and Methodology at NORI. So today we're going to focus on a few different startups. Um, With the current economic downturns, United Nations criticism of carbon removal and issues in the carbon offset market, CDAR startups are facing, you know, some headwinds. Despite these, we continue to see considerable investment in the industry as many investors perceive CDR as a vital part of the path towards achieving net zero emissions. In today's discussion, we'll delve into the implication of three recent notable announcements from CDR startups. These range from small-scale startups to some of the most prominent in the industry. We aim to explore what these developments, including cutting-edge technology fresh from the lab, scientific research backed by philanthropy, and a $100 million Series B funding, suggest about the current opportunities and obstacles for CDR startups. So we will begin with the $100 million in Series B funding that Charm Industrials received, which was led by General Catalyst. The company, if you aren't aware, uses pyrolysis to turn the residue from cornfields into an oil, which it then injects underground. So Susan, what do you think of that investment and its ability and Charm's ability to attract investors like General Catalyst? Well, I think it's fantastic. Congratulations to Charm. Um, Charm is, you know, just one of the top names in the space. They've been at it for a really long time. And, um, you know, we'll we'll talk about a couple of different things going on here. First and foremost, I think it's really important to note that right now the investing environment is um, pretty, I think it continues to be pretty bleak, kind of off the tails of 2022, And yet we see this $100 million Series B coming from Charm in a space that's very challenging. Um, And I think it just shows that no matter what's going on kind of categorically, there are always companies and entrepreneurs that stand out just because they they do. Um, And Charm is a really great example of that. So Peter Reinhardt, who's one of the co-founders and the CEO of Charm, is obviously a really successful serial entrepreneur. He has um, long-standing, positive, strong, pre-existing relationships with investors, I'm sure at General Catalyst and beyond at every single venture fund, um, from his work building segment into a massive business. Um, and I think Charm also is a company that has just said what they're going to do, um, done what they said they were going to do, and done it sort of on the timeline they said that they were going to do it. 
And that's really not easy for a company that's trying to really pioneer a novel way to remove carbon. Um, I remember hearing about Charm years ago, several years ago, and what they thought they could do in terms of scale and pricing. And now it looks like they actually have line of sight to that. And I think that's just the hallmark of a seasoned entrepreneur that doesn't um, doesn't say things that that he doesn't believe aren't going to come true. Um, there's a lot of planning behind the direction of this company and how it's executed. And I think the excellence just sort of speaks for itself. I will also say there's another factor going for them, which is that I believe that many generalist investors today, especially at these kind of later early stage or even into growth stages, are looking for their carbon investment. And if they look across the landscape at what that carbon investment is going to be, Charm is clearly a standout brand. Peter is clearly a standout entrepreneur. And so um, it makes a lot of sense that a lot of that attention and those investment dollars are going to accrue to this company. Um, I'll say like some of the things that are really strong highlights of what they've been able, of what they said they would do that they've actually done are that they've proven that they can sequester. Um, sure, still at very small scale, but I believe the last number that I saw was something in the 6,000 ton range. Now, Climeworks is in the, I think, 10,000 ton range, and it's been around for a lot longer than Charm. And so not to knock on Climeworks, I think Climeworks is obviously also an incredible company. But if you're an investor that, you know, maybe you missed the Climeworks boat and it's quite late stage now, and you're looking for something that's a little bit earlier, this is a great quote unquote product an investment product, a deal product for you. Um, also, they're already on their second facility, which is really incredible. And the amount of time that Charm has been around, the fact that they're actually going out there and building facility infrastructure is really impressive. And, and they're already on their second one. So there's something under the belt there. Um, I would caution against, I think the question was, what does this say about carbon removal and carbon removal startups? I would caution it against reading too much on, from this particular deal on what it says about the category, I think it says everything about the company. Charm definitely is charmed with a, the right kind of pedigree. Um, Naive, in October of 2021, Charm claimed to have delivered the largest permanent carbon removal delivery of all time of 5,000 tons. Maybe it's now even increased to 6,000. Um, since then, they've obviously seen a lot of growth. So what lessons do you think people in the startup, in carbon removal startups should learn from this, especially if they don't kind of have Peter Reinhardt's entrepreneurial background. Yeah, well, I would just second everything Susan said about Charm and their leadership. I think it's a really well-run company and, and I think they've done a lot of things right early on. And I think they've been thinking very strategically about um, MRV and, and, and some of the policies that are going to need to be in place in order for them to grow. And so I've, I've always been kind of impressed with how kind of ahead of the curve um, Peter and his team have been. Uh, so great to hear about their recent success. And I think, you know, there's, um, you know, there's, there's so many things that have made, uh, you know, Charm successful and, and Susan covered a lot of them. I think an, an additional piece is that Charm really leaned into the idea that they can start small and modular and iterate and grow and learn. And, you know, modular form factors and, and, and kind of the approach that Charm has taken in that respect won't make sense for everyone. Uh, but where it does, I think startups should try to lean into that. It enables, um, you know, opportunities to uh, learn what's working, what's not working, 
make the right kind of changes where they need to, uh, and then be able to deliver what sounds like a small amount in five or 6,000 tons uh, early on, but that's certainly more than anyone else has delivered. And so they'll just be able to grow on that. They'll be able to compound that growth and they'll be able to uh, build on that success. And each each iteration that they build, every new facility or um, or or uh, other kind of uh, equipment that it's part of their process uh, that they have to build on um, is going to be better and more cost effective. And so then you can kind of really see what makes this uh, a pretty attractive investment. Um, I think it's interesting, and I don't know if either one of you have thoughts on this, but Charm has not seemed to have any pushback from the local communities or governmental bodies about what they're doing. You know, some of the other CDR startups have seen that. So maybe Naeem, you would be best positioned to, to think to answer this question. Why do you think that is? What are they what have they done that allows them to do multiple mobile units and not get the same sort of pushback we're seeing even around pipelines and other things in the CDR industry? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, their approach is pretty low infrastructure, and, and so you're not going to bump up against things that, uh, you know, things like pipelines and so on, at least at the scale that we're talking about right now, right? Uh, that that could change at uh, some point in the future, I, I'm not sure. But but the point is, is that with Charm's approach, um, you know, they are dealing with waste agricultural residues people understand that they know uh they know about that it's not uh it's not as science fictiony sounding as direct air capture can be at times uh and then they're they're injecting in existing wells of which there are a large amount of them and we've been injecting into those wells for a while now they're not talking about bringing online um or they weren't required to bring online an entirely new class of wells to to make their their process work and so they've benefited, I, not to say that there's not going to be significant infrastructure need, needed and, and massive supply chains needed for Charm's work at scale, but at least so far, they've had to bump up against less of that uh, than I think um, other approaches like direct air capture have. And because we're talking about waste residues in uh, you know agricultural areas or other forested areas that people kind of have a grasp of versus something like ocean CDR, where we're not really sure what the ecological impacts really uh, could be for some of these approaches and that require a bit more research and attention. Uh, they've been able to kind of navigate around some of those questions. Um, and eventually, you know, they're going to come up against some community resistance or questions or uh, or whatever the case may be. Uh, they're not immune to that. But at least to the scale that they've reached so far, um, I think that they've benefited from the form factor and their approach that have allowed them to kind of uh, navigate that a little bit easier. I would agree. And I would just say it's a classic example of charm, really understanding the principle of keeping one foot in the known and extending one foot into the unknown. So there's a lot that they're leaning on that's, you know, kind of pre-existing processes uh, that are already adjacent to the industries that we that, that Naeem mentioned. Um, and then it's just, it, it just sort of like, a slight twist on the biomass incineration that's already happening in agriculture and in forestry. Oh, but it's like a little bit of a better twist. It's a slight twist on the um, uh, uh, depleted well injection that's happening for enhanced oil recovery, but it's like even better because we're actually sequestering the carbon back underground. So I think they've done a really good job of that. And then um, of course the idea of bringing the process to the place where it needs to happen, as opposed to having to bring the 
um, the matter, the biomass to a centralized facility is um, great because it just solves a lot of people's problems. Yeah, it, I mean, I was observing during Carbon Unbound to sort of a similar thing where it seemed like the startups that were doing the best were sort of adjacent to industries that already existed. And so to your point, Susan, partially in the known, partially in the unknown, a lot less scary than what all in the unknown. Um, but one last question about Charm for you, Susan, is they have made offtake deals with Frontier and JP Morgan, Lower Carbon, Exor, Ventures, Kinovic, Thrive Capital, Eli Guild all joined the Series B deal. So what does the portfolio invest of investors say to you? And what, you know, what do you think about the group as a whole? I mean, I think it really speaks for itself. Um, I will say that Stripe was an investor in Charm Seed Round. And so the frontier offtake and participation completely makes sense um, and could, was foreshadowed um, way back when that round happened. Some of its other seed investors also foreshadow this current round. So um, it was a lot of individual GPs uh, of important funds. For example, David Ulovich, who's a GP at Andreessen Horowitz, participated as an angel. Thomas McInerney, who's a really important angel um, doing a lot of deep tech stuff, has also participated in the seed round. Peter Reinhardt himself invested in the company. Um, lower Carbon started in at the seed. So it was like very much an inside baseball um, type of fundraising profile for this company from the very beginning. And I honestly wouldn't have expected at the Series B, if they went out and did everything they said they were going to do, which they did, I wouldn't expect anything less. I wouldn't expect anything less than General Catalyst and um, Elad uh, Gill coming in for a round like this. I mean, those companies are, I mean, not companies, I should say those investors are um, in some ways kind of like market makers or they're unicorn makers, I would say. And um, it makes a lot of sense, but I would almost also venture to say that as long as they didn't screw anything up really royally, a lot of this company's fortune was sort of baked in at a very, very early stage. And that's not in any way to um, diminish anything they've done since then, because it's still monumental to, um, you know, requires moving some mountains to be able to execute against some of those early plans. But um, I will also say that, you know, for XYZ carbon removal company, and there's so many wonderful ones out there that are out there that are early stage, that are maybe at the R&D stages or that are coming out of a lab, let this be a lesson to you that relationships, brand and connections matter just as much, if not more than technology and even than execution. Not that you can't be uh, non-excellent on technology, not that you can slack on execution, but that you need those other things as well, if not just as much, or if not even more. I chuckle because, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of supplier startups in my job, and it is amazing the range of skills uh, when it comes to the business and the branding and the relationship building that you see um, out there right now. It, it's, it is really kind of like the Wild West from that perspective. Um, I want to now pivot to a different type of funding model, which is Carbon to Sea. The former CTO of Meta has announced that his co-founded nonprofit Additional Ventures has launched the Carbon to Sea Initiative, a $50 million project dedicated to advancing ocean alkalinity enhancement through research, regulatory framework development, and increased scientific funding to the field. 
Um, so Carbon to Sea has received funding from philanthropic organizations. And Susan, how should these kinds of organizations be looking to aid the carbon removal field? What can they do that an investor in a VC cannot? Well, philanthropic funding is absolutely critical in this particular category. And before I get into any specific thoughts on this, I will just go ahead, if anybody is, your ears are perked at this, go ahead and check out Prime Coalition and any of their resources that, that they have on their website that are incredible educational um, resources on how uh, different types of philanthropic funding can work for climate businesses. Um, okay, so with that said, I tend to think about it as philanthropic funding is sort of like, think of it as the super early um, friends and family or angel investor that can back something when it's too risky, even for venture. Um, venture is a uh, is a high risk asset class, and, and it's designed to be. But there are some risks on, for example, um, science and technology that even venture is not willing or not able to take because of its fiduciary relationship with uh, with LPs, for example. Now, philanthropy can take much bigger risks with, risks with capital because it is typically looking for a zero x to maybe a best case 1X return on capital. Now, remember philanthropy is about giving money away. If you give a dollar to um, a, a, a shelter, a soup kitchen, um, an animal nonprofit, whatever it is, you're not expecting that dollar to come back to you in the way that you do when you invest a dollar into an index fund. And so that's what I mean by the zero X. And in some cases, a 1x if you're using some of the tools such as um, program-related investments or recoverable grants, which again, Prime Coalition, just everybody remember Prime Coalition has incredible resourcing for you to learn more about those tools. So I think just because of that, because of this kind of very flexible return profile, no one can negotiate, you know, no one can beat zero, no one can beat free. Um, and the fact that philanthropy is is okay, is down with a zero X return on any money that's given away, makes it incredibly useful and really um, kind of critical in filling this gap that, that, you know, sort of no other type of financing can really get to, except for maybe some certain types of government research grants. Um, so again, they're, they're free of those financial constraints and requirements that other types of investors such as myself, a VC would be subject to. And it's a category of financing that I really hope will grow. And the one caveat that I'll um, list here is that um, while it can be tempting to think, well, I'll just put some you know, philanthropic dollars here instead of a zero X, maybe I'll get a one or a 1.5 X. This is a great trick to bypass the tax man or woman and um, be able to feel like I'm doing something good and sort of like not have all, you know, have my, my, not have all my philanthropy dollars go to zero. I think we have to be really, really critical with ourselves and perform very honest assessments of additionality, of impact. Um, and what I mean by additionality is additionality of that capital. Are you really filling a gap that um, private capital wouldn't otherwise fill? And then is the impact really there? Or, and when I'm talking about impact, I'm talking about sustainability and climate impact. Or is this something that maybe isn't as good as it looks on the outset? So I think 
All of those pieces are really important, but overall, I really hope to see more things like the Carbon to Sea initiative um, happening all over the carbon removal and really climate tech space. Um, so Naeem, what, what do you see as the state of OAE commercialization? What kind of progress are startups making in this field? Where do you, you know, where do you see the next year or so going? Well, OAE commercialization is still really early, um, you know, and I think there's still questions that need to be answered around, you know, uh, monitoring, measuring, reporting, and verification around community acceptance, around ecological impact. So I'm, I'm really excited about OAE, but as Susan mentioned, you know, we're talking about really early ventures. And so strategic philanthropic funding, like the type we've just seen here, makes a lot of sense at this stage. Um, and I think startups are making progress in terms of getting small pilots off of the ground. And we're seeing, um, you know, universities like I think Dalhousie University in Eastern Canada got a lot of money, about $150 million to better understand ocean systems and ocean kind of carbon removal methods in particular. Uh, and so together, you know, with partnerships with universities and with companies uh, that are involved in this space, together doing some important, I think, foundational research and, and funding like this helps enable that. Uh, but I think, you know, we're we're um, far from kind of seeing that sort of success that we're seeing with groups like Charm, for example, in this space, because it's so early. And as, as Susan alluded to earlier, just um, uh, uh, a little too risky for uh, for a lot of venture funders to, to pile on board. So it seems like this is a really strategic use of, of, of funding to really advance the OAE field. And I'm, I'm exciting, excited about what they can do about it. So Susan, after sort of hearing what Naeem was saying about the readiness and your own observations about the readiness of OAE, how, how do investors think about this technology and when are investors going to be ready to jump in? What kind of outcomes do you think OAE needs to show in order to get to the next round of funding? Well, I think the first thing is that you have to believe the markets are there as a very baseline to all of this. I think that is something we've kind of touched on across many different episodes of the podcast. And it's sort of like at this point, not something we need to spend a ton of time on. We know that the markets are there and that's why there are so many companies and so many investors already involved, but I do want to call that out as a, as a very first kind of step zero. Um, and then from there, it's all about, does the technology work? Um, what's the price and how scalable is it? It's really, I always say the work that we do as investors is so simple compared to the work that builders do. Um, it's really just these kind of core fundamental questions that we ask over and over again of every single business, no matter what technology it is um, bringing into the world. Is there a market for it? Does it actually work? Um, how much does it cost? And how big does it get? Um, there might be some other questions around how unique is it? Um, what is the product differentiation? And is there and where does it lie um, a competitive moat around this particular type of product? Um, but I think even before we get into those questions, you know, especially with something as early as um, ocean alkalinity enhancement, we just want to know: Does the technology actually work? Um, is there a line of sight to pricing that fits with what the market is has already demonstrated and has already expressed it's willing to pay? And can this actually uh, scale to any sort of size that could meet the demand that's already out there? So I think those are just really the, the fundamental questions. Um, when it comes to something so early in its scientific research and development, 
I think one of the most important things to understand on the technology side is how feasible is it? Um, does the technology itself not just scale to markets, but does it scale from a, a an implementation or from like a deployment standpoint beyond an experiment, beyond the lab bench, beyond the first pilot? Um, there are a lot of things that can prevent scalability um, in terms of unit economics and business model, but there are also things that can sort of hinder scalability just purely from a technical standpoint. So it's really important to understand both of those before, and, and I think for there to be more common education and more of a common understanding around um, how all of those questions apply to OAE before a lot of investors are gonna start getting um, confident around this space. So Naeem, final question to you. You've obviously talked a lot and written about the importance of diverse funding. Um, and so what are you seeing kind of out there? Are we seeing more diverse funding mechanisms coming online? You're you're obviously starting a new nonprofit in Canada. What does it look like up there? You know, what are what are you seeing from a funding perspective? I think we still need to see, you know, a more diverse range of funding options, especially better targeted for uh, different CDR methods that are, are further along or models that, you know, are trying to solve different problems. Not everyone's trying to build a, a new technology, but they're trying to uh, develop the field or the ecosystem or uh, an MRV tool or uh, you know, some of these other pieces. There's, there's an entire ecosystem that needs to be built beyond um, what we traditionally think of as a kind of carbon removal startup. So we, we do need to see more philanthropic funding, more government research funding, and other forms of uh, non-dilutive funding that encourage that kind of research development and deployment of CDR methods and other technologies um, and other solutions that are going to support this entire new industry that we're trying to build here. Um, I also think in general, when we have that greater sense of diversity of funding, we reduce the pressure on startups to maybe overly focus or disproportionately focus on selling carbon credits at the expense of getting kind of key questions around MRV or community impacts or ecological impacts figured out. So what it's really about is a more fit for purpose funding model um, for you know, different methods of carbon removal. Uh, Ocean CDR is one that comes to mind. And um, I'll just say again, it's really great to see this you know, team at Additional Ventures and now um, Antonius at Carbon to See, you know, really super smart people uh, who are right to focus on Ocean CDR uh, and I think hopefully serves as a model for this is exactly the type of funding and the type of more of organizations that we need to see uh, to help build out this industry. You know, there's a lot of questions around how do we develop markets and, and how do we do market shaping correctly? How do we uh, build out institutions and systems for measurement, reporting, and verification? There are different funding models outside of the traditional VC world that are better suited to support those sorts of questions and figure out those sorts of questions. And so it was really, really um, exciting to see uh, a new initiative like this with um, some really good backing. Uh, and, and I think they're gonna have a huge impact as a result. Uh, so final topic, we're gonna uh, talk about Holocene, a new DAC startup that is partnering with the DOE, it's hiring new staff and working to use its lower energy process to move the industry forward. They are based in Knoxville, Tennessee, which I thought was a little interesting, not usual in the space, and was founded by um, a former Climeworks engineer, Inka Timoft. I apologize if I said your wrong, name wrong. So anyway, Susan, 
we've talked about one of the leading fundraisers in CDR as well as well-funded, you know, academic nonprofit efforts. What, where is this company fit in with like a really interesting scientific idea, but super like bench stage kind of uh, in its tech? It's totally what we were just talking about earlier when we were discussing the Carbon to Sea initiative and what Naeem has been discussing with this kind of plurality of funders coming online. Um, in addition to venture, and I feel like today's episode is just really the perfect um, kind of like pageant. It's like the rainbow pageant of carbon removal startups and their funders, right? We have the venture-backed model with, you know, just a cap table chock full of insiders and a CEO that, you know, knows everybody in the business. We have um, a philanthropic model, and now we have the DOE-backed model. I think this, this um, effort or company or organization um, is exactly right where it should be, and I'm so thrilled and happy to see the Department of Energy um, getting involved in something like this because it has not only carbon removal implications, but because it is a more efficient energy inf efficient and less energy intensive um, approach to direct air capture. I think there's a lot of really interesting implications for um, energy utilization at large. And so um, I just think it's fantastic that they have the DOE buy-in. I think maybe this is a company, depending on you know what direction it goes in, whether it does become a company or whether um, it becomes a technology that kind of merges with something else. I think this could be a really great early um, waypoint on the way to becoming a private organization later on. Um, now, one thing that did stand out to me was that they are licensing the, uh, the technology from, I believe, a um, actually a, already a government funded uh, research initiative. And so I am not, I don't know the details around that. I haven't you know, looked at those docs or anything like that. I don't know what that particular licensing model implies for enterprise value creation and capture down the road, but I imagine that any potential investors would want to look very closely at that. Um, but I think this is a really great example of how and why and where government can be involved in this space. So, um, Naeem, you were just at the DAC summit and, you know, what were some of your takeaways and what do you think, you know, very early stage companies like Holocene could have or did gather from from this industry meeting? Yeah, I had the opportunity to go to the DAC summit a couple of weeks ago um, and, you know, it was really well, well organized and, and it had, you know, something like 400 people in attendance in person, I think a few thousand online. So it was, it was really a successful event and, you know, a number of takeaways, probably too many to count. Um, I had also had an opportunity to interview kind of four industry leaders in the space and, and get into that same question around what their takeaways were and, and were able to, was able to publish that uh, today on my podcast. So if folks want to take a look at that that's um, if, and, and get a little deeper on takeaways from Direct Air Capture Summit, um, be sure to check that out. But I think for me, it was great to see um, the conversation more kind of evolved and and elevated um, in that we're getting kind of more precise and more nuanced and more analytical in how we talk about carbon removal and, and DAC uh, more, more specifically, um, the importance of environmental justice and, 
and the importance of building trust through MRV systems and other systems uh, to support the sector are like kind of finally getting the attention that they deserve. Um, and it was really cool to see the opportunity to, to deploy direct air capture around the world, um, getting away from kind of a US centric perspective that we've all kind of had with these policies that have been passed and a lot of the announcements around DAC uh, recently, uh, you know, in the US um, and seeing, wow, like places like Kenya could be really interesting uh, places to deploy direct air capture at scale. Uh, that was all really cool to hear. So there's some really, uh, really exciting kind of takeaways uh, coming out of that, uh, coming out of that event. And, um, you know, I think all of those things are just something that a, a new company like Holocene and others can just keep in the back of their mind. I think they're probably very early stage and and at this kind of bench scale, this is stuff that you're kind of thinking about down the road, but, uh, but it's just helpful to see uh, the industry kind of evolving and getting a little more mature every single year. Uh, and that's helpful to new companies that are starting up and, and and they're getting an opportunity then to learn about what they should be thinking about as they as they grow their business. So Susan, um, you know, as a company like Holocene grows, maybe their version 2.0 of Jack or 3.0, I'm not sure, but do you think there will be investor interest when they're ready to go out for the VC funding? Or is it um, you know, have have the large investors already sort of jumped in and it might be too late? Yes, I think it's all going to depend on the specifics of some of the things that we talked about earlier around, um, well, we know the market is is probably there around carbon removal. Otherwise, why we none of us would be here right now. Um, but, you know, is it, how, does it, how does the technology work? Does it work? How does it scale? What is the pricing? All of those kind of things. Um, let's say those answers are positive. I absolutely think that there will be investors. I don't think that we are at or anywhere near and certainly not past peak investment for carbon removal or for technological carbon removal or even close. Um, I think there's a lot more to come. I think it's still very early days. And um, just because investors have their token carbon removal deal doesn't mean that it's not going to be something that they revisit with new emerging technologies with better lessons learned um, and with more time. I think it's also a very big world out there. Um, we've heard about probably what fewer than, uh, certainly fewer than 50 technological carbon removal companies get kind of important major funding. Um, there are many, many, many investors in the sea and many that are still kind of watching the space, sitting on the sidelines, um, and so I think there will be plenty of opportunities for companies that, again, going back to the key criteria, can demonstrate that their technology actually works, um, that it's price competitive, that it's scalable, um, and that uh, there's really going to be an enterprise value creation opportunity around it. So final question for you, Naeem, you know, as you... Holocene has the advantage of being a little bit later so they can have some lessons learned uh, from current DAC startups. What would you tell them the major milestones they should try to prioritize to really get to a commercialization stage? I'd probably be telling them stuff they're already thinking about, but you know, I think how do you get to building out an early kind of pilot stage facility kind of lower volume and focused on learning and improving and iterating on that, I think is important. Um, you know, 
figuring out what worked at bench scale that might not work in the real world as early as possible is probably a really useful thing to do. Um, also, I think kind of getting really clear and specific about your differentiator is going to be important to do uh, in what's becoming a pretty crowded direct air capture field. Um, this is, you know, if you look at the companies um, listed on the Direct Air Capture Coalition website and, and other kind of uh, industry organizations, like direct air capture is, is not... I wouldn't say it's crowded, but it's getting there. And, um, or I, I would actually say it's getting pretty crowded. And, uh, and I think it's, it's important to kind of, um, kind of understand what, what your differentiator is as a new entrant in the, in the space, uh, given that there's been uh, a lot of action recently. Uh, so I think those are probably what you want to prioritize to ensure, you know, that degree of kind of successful commercialization at this stage. The last one I'd point out is, is, and this is a little further down down the road for uh, for a company like Holocene, but thinking a lot about uh, who do you kind of partner with uh, to get um, you know subsequent um, uh, projects off the ground um, seems like an important thing to do, especially given their model. Uh, and 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 how do we kind of answer the question around uh, you know carbon storage for for uh, direct air capture facilities and 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 you know, thinking about how that needs to be sorted out before uh, we can really um, successfully commercialize this uh, this new approach. So, um, but ultimately, it sounds like they're very early stage, and and some of the things that they need to get figured out right now is just what what might not work in the real world that worked at bench scale, and figuring that out qu quickly. I think is going to be probably job number one. All right. Well, we'll be following their progress as we follow most of these DAC companies' progress. Susan, Naeem, thank you so much for your time. And I will see you guys in a month in July. And for all of our listeners, thanks for listening and hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.